Well, we welcome you today and so glad that you could join us wherever you are. We invite you to join in and sing as we sing Light of the World.
go before us, you will lead the way. We have found a refuge, only you can say. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Even when I stumble, even when I fall, even when I turn back, still your love is sure. You will not abandon, you will not forsake, you will cheer me on. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Neither height nor depth can separate us. Son to free us holds me in his love. Neither height nor death can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. He who gave his son to free us holds me in his love. Love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us? Timberwood Church, happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers and mother-like individuals that are out there today. Somebody said to me last week or the other week, camera adds about 15 pounds, and I said, no, it's actually the quarantine. Um, that's what's adding the 15 pounds. Um, a few things that are coming up for us uh, as a Timberwood Church family. May 23rd, it is a Saturday, and as many of you know, we are still moving ahead with phase three. And so May 23rd, we're going to have a special kind of uh, socially distanced, groundbreaking type thing that is somewhat vague, but it's on May 23rd, uh, starting at 9 o'clock between 9 and 3, and uh, more information will come later when John decides that information. So uh, you can plan ahead for that May 23rd between 9 and 3 o'clock. Also, some people have been asking about the faith stories. I said faith stories are a little bit like haircuts. They will come back um, once we are no longer sheltering in place. So hopefully 
you realize that was a joke, uh, but we will be bringing them back. Thank you, Lee. It's good, good when somebody laughs. Uh, we will be having face stories come back after we get things through, hopefully, very soon. So let's pray. Father God, we come to you on this day that we recognize as Mother's Day, and we are thankful for all of the mothers that exist in our lives. And we also recognize that for some of us today is a challenging day as we remember our mothers that aren't with us. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with, with us as we look to celebrate those who have influenced us as a mother or as a mother-like figure in our lives. And we pray for those who desire so greatly to be a mother. And we pray that you would be with us this morning as we gather together virtually and we continue to recognize that, that you have created this thing called your church. And we know now more than ever that, that the church is not a building. The church is a body of individuals. And so as we come together this morning virtually from so many different places, we are grateful for this opportunity that technology provides us to be together, to share in this experience to come and to sing and to worship you through the words that we sing and your word. We pray that you would move in us no matter where we are at and that we would take this time to pause and to breathe deeply and to affirm that, that no matter what comes at us, because you are for us, it doesn't matter what comes against us because your love is greater. We hold firm to that this morning. We are so grateful for the love that you share with us and for us and the opportunity that we have to be in relationship with you through your son who came, who served, who died and was resurrected. It's in his name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we invite you to join in as we sing a song about God's forgiveness and grace and how we're changed by that.
I want to share something very um, personal, something I've never shared with anyone in the world before. Something that will affect me deeply. I started Timberwood almost 14 years ago. And when I started Timberwood, I was the second full-time ministry hire. I was the second pastor after John. It was an amazing time. I mean, it seemed like we were making it up every day. Something new was happening. And there was a bond that formed between John and I. We learned to sail together. We, he got me back into running. We, we were doing all kinds of things, and it was seeming like, well, it was unique. The church grew, and, and, and a few years later, it was time to add more staff, and I, and I fully understood and supported and was saying, we need to add staff, and, and I was a part of finding some of that staff, and one of those staff members was Eric Holtz, and Eric came on board as the third pastor. And I liked Eric a lot, and, and my relationship with John didn't change at all. In fact, we learned to cycle. John introduced me to cycling. We were cycling and all that. But something was different. Somehow three weren't two. And I felt a, a deep hurt, to be honest. John didn't treat me any different. And, and really, things weren't different, but they weren't as they were. And it really threw me into a tailspin. I tell myself, hey, you're serving God. Everything's the same. The church is growing. This is great. But it didn't necessarily always feel that way. Well, we're going to see that in our passage today. How that can be very real. A true felt emotion. So let's turn to Isaiah 49 and continue on our study of Isaiah. There's part of me that wants to say, well, we're here. We've made it. We're to chapter 49. We're into the good stuff now. As Christians, that's sometimes how we feel about the book Isaiah. Give me the good stuff, the stuff about the Messiah, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the part about Christ. That's the part I care about. You know, the, the stuff that's quoted each Christmas. That's what I want. Oh, there's been some of that stuff along the way, but now we're into the real heart of that good stuff. The problem with thinking that way is we can't understand the good stuff if we don't understand the other stuff. And the other stuff is critically important to us Christians today. We're going to see it in this transition from, from chapter 48 to 49. Now remember last week God was telling the Jews that he prophesied, so when that, that, that which he prophesied came true, they'd know he was the true God. And he used it as an example that he was also going to be doing new things. And he used it as an example King Cyrus and how he was using King Cyrus of the Persians to redeem or bring back the Jews to the promised land. And how he was going to be doing that in the future. 
And that sets up this section of Isaiah. Because he's going to be talking about another new thing he's going to be doing. Through this servant, the servant of God, where he's going to fully redeem Judah to himself. But there's a little problem. It isn't just Judah that he wants to redeem. So let's go to chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. This servant of God we're going to be hearing about is talking. And, and throughout this passage today, we have to figure out, is it the servant speaking or, or God the Father speaking? But here it's the servant. And now we're not really told that in this verse, but it's going to become clear very quickly. And he's saying that God didn't just pick him out of a crowd. This isn't a last-minute change by God, an adjustment to his plan. This has been planned all along. And he literally, God literally initiated this plan from the servant's conception. That sounds familiar. Think of the Gospel of Matthew. Then he goes on in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. This is where we realize it's the Messiah, the Christ. And that we're talking about the Christ being Jesus. We know in the Gospel of John, John talks about how Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And then we read in Hebrews 4, 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then finally in Revelation 1.16, when John is talking about this, this phenomenal image of Jesus Christ that he has or is being given, he says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is clearly Jesus Christ. At least that's how the New Testament sees this passage. Sees that Isaiah is talking about the servant that's going to be coming, and that servant will be Jesus Christ. But it's been hidden. It's been hidden by God, and, and, and throughout the New Testament we keep hearing about that. This amazing thing that's been hidden by God but is now being revealed through Jesus. Then we go on to verse 3. And he, God, said to me, servant, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You are my servant, Israel. What, what could God be talking about? How is Jesus Israel? Isn't Israel Israel? We have to remember what Israel's mission was. Why did God choose them? He didn't choose them because of them being anything special. He chose them because he wanted to use them to reveal himself to the world. That through his relationship with the Israelites, 
the world was to be drawn to them and thus to God. But it failed, not because of God, not because of the plan, but because of the Israelites. And what he's saying, the servant is going to be the new Israel. The true Israel. That this servant is going to be how God is going to draw the world to him. Redeem the world to him. And that's what one of the reasons, one of the missions of the servant is. But we always have to remember, in whom I will be glorified, it is the goal of the servant of God to first and foremost always glorify the Father. We go on to verse 4. But I, servant still talking, but I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant seems to be saying he's failed. How how can this be? Well, it's a great view of the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. We got to remember from a human standpoint Where was Jesus at? Where were things at when Jesus died on the cross? He was mostly abandoned. He only had a few followers at that time anyway, and most of those scattered. He died. It didn't seem like he had brought any change or initiated any movement into the earth. It didn't seem like too many people were redeemed. It didn't seem like too many people actually even knew who he was. From a human perspective, we got to remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, if it can be possible to take this thing away from me, please do. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, how have you, why have you forsaken me? You can understand from a human standpoint why Jesus Christ, why the servant would say, I labored in vain. It was all for nothing. And we must remember that Jesus was fully divine also. He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. He knows he is the Son of God. He knows the Father will ensure that this was not in vain but that what the Father was seeking to bring about will happen. We go on, verse 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, this is the servant speaking, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He... Now, God the Father speaking, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, for my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What is the mission of the servant? First and foremost, to reconcile the preserved of Israel back to God the Father. Remember, this isn't all of Israel. Right now, we've only got 
a couple of tribes of the 12 tribes. We've got Judah and Benjamin. It's been whittled down to that. And now, who's going to be redeemed to God through the, the servant? Even smaller remnant, the preserved. Those that believe that the servant, the son, is truly the son of God. They are the ones that are going to be redeemed. But this is too light a thing. This is too light a thing, God says. No, I'm going to restore the whole world to myself. No longer is it just Judah. No longer is it a few Jews. I am going to bring this light, the truth of the servant, to the entire ends of the earth. We saw in the study of Nehemiah how Nehemiah was sent to do several things, but essentially the goal of all of it was to bring back the Jews to becoming the people of God and restoring them to God. And he did it by building the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And then he did it by this formula of reading scripture, repentance, covenant renewal. The problem is it didn't last. It never does. And that's the history of God and the Israelites. There was always this problem, this problem called sin. It was the barrier between the Israelites and God. If restoration was ever going to truly happen, it had to be grounded in a lasting foundation of truth. That sin had to be dealt with once and for all. My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The answer was and is salvation from God to earth by and through His servant. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, God speaking now, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is an amazing view of the first and second coming of the servant, Jesus Christ. We lump it all together in one verse, and in the middle of it, it seems to make a shift, and it does. It starts off with the first coming that this Redeemer, this servant, is going to be despised by the world. He is going to be despised, abhorred, and be under the rulers of the world. Under to the extent that he is going to be killed by the rulers of the world. His own nation despises him. The head of the most powerful nation on earth, Rome, will kill him. And yet when he comes a second time, princes shall fall prostrate to him. They will acknowledge who he is. They will know that this is not who they once thought he was. And all of this because he was chosen to do it by the Father. Go on, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you, 
as a covenant to the people to establish the land and apportion the desolate heritage. This is a covenant. While it sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't Jeremiah in, in chapter 31 talk about a new covenant? We remember the old covenant, the covenant that started with Abraham, the covenant that is between God and his people, the Israelites. But, but this is a new covenant. This is Isaiah around 700 B.C. talking about a covenant that will be told by Jeremiah around 600, 590 B.C., which will be fulfilled 500 years later in Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of a prophecy of a fulfillment. And what this new covenant is, is Jesus Christ. Remember every time we, we take communion here, or not every time, but most times we take communion here, we'll hear about how Jesus will say, this is my blood, this is the new covenant. I am the new covenant. I am the way to the new covenant. I am the embodiment of the new covenant with God. Remember, he's the new Israel. He's the new covenant. We aren't going to see it today, but he becomes the new law. He becomes the new ultimate revelation. Verse 9. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness appear, they shall feel, feed along the ways, and all barren heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor scorching wind nor sun shall he strike them, for he has pity on them and will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and all my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Cyrene. All my prisoners, all you prisoners of darkness, and who are prisoners of darkness? The ones that are believing the truth that the world is telling them. That you're not good enough. That you aren't pretty enough. That you aren't making enough money. That you don't do this, you don't that. You're not a good enough parent, you're not a good spouse. You're all these things, all this darkness that you don't have any way to be good enough. And when he's saying, all you prisoners of darkness, come out into the light, the light of freedom. Come out to the provision and protection of God. Oh, there's still going to be mountains and valleys. There's still going to be good times and bad times. But God will be with you through them all. And all you prisoners come from all over the earth. 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his affliction. So how should the creation react to this glorious day? By rejoicing. It's the most amazing day that creation has seen. It's even a greater day than the day that creation came about. But how does Zion, how do the Israelites react? 
14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That exclusive relationship, that one-on-one between God and the Israelites, well, they see it being threatened. See, there's something about exclusivity that makes us feel special. And when that exclusivity seems to be diluted, well, we can feel like we're abandoned, lost, forgotten. And that's what the Jews are feeling. They feel that they've lost their status as God's unique people on earth. If you're going to start letting anybody in, then what, what about me? But God responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Can she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who lay you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on all on as ornaments. You shall bind them on as, bride, as a bride does. I'm, I can't forget you. You're my child. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, by the way. I wanted to work that in right there. I can't forget you like a mother can't forget her child. And even a mother that forgets her child, I would never do that. You're still mine. And and all these others that are coming in, they're coming in to you. You're going to put them on as ornaments. They're going to be grafted in to you. Now, this is a period of refinement. Some branches will be broken off. There'll be some pruning. But they aren't creating something new. They're being grafted into what exists, the people of God. They aren't replacing you. They are augmenting and strengthening you. Remember back in Romans eleven seventeen. you remember all the way back there when we were studying Romans? And Paul talks about how the Gentiles are going to be grafted in to the people of God and how that's going to be so powerful to expand the kingdom but also strengthen the kingdom. And that's what we're talking about here. He goes on, verse 13, 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your deserted or de- or devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the people. 
and they will bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and your queens, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. This will all cause the people of God to grow significantly. The promised land will not be large enough. We cannot be focused on the promised land. We must expand it. We must expand it so that it can accommodate this ever-growing group of God's people. And though the Jews were small and isolated and barren, it's, it's this grafting in will be like a barren woman being able to have children again. Remember back in verse 3 when we talked about Israel's role and Israel wasn't fulfilling its role? Now the new Israel, the servant, the people of God will be fulfilled through the church. Remember, Jesus comes and becomes the new Israel and the new Israel is to draw people to him. And what does the church today do? It is following on the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus ascends, the church continues that work. So essentially, the church is doing what Israel was to do, drawing people from all over the earth to it, to grow the kingdom. And he says in 22, they're going to be your children brought to you. It's, they're all going to be of one family. You Jew who thinks you're losing out, you're gaining brothers and sisters right and left. That is what the work of God is. And those who wait, those who believe this, will not be put to shame. And then the end. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, and the Mighty One, Jacob. But surely this can't be done, God. The mighty tyrant's not going to give up his prey, his captive. He's not going to allow you to do this. The world, Satan, who controls the world, is not going to allow this to happen. Oh, this sounds great, God. But you can't really do it. You can't really free me. You can't really free me from sin. You can't really help me with my problems. You can't really protect me. I know you want to. But you don't know what I'm going through. God's answer? Emphatic yes. Yes, the mighty enemy of God will be made to give up his prey. And then we have these powerful I will. I, God, will contend with those who contend with you. I will make 
your oppressors eat their own flesh. I will save your children. And I do that, the whole world will know. When I do that, the whole world will know I am. I am the Lord. Powerful close. I came to realize and he's sitting right here. That with Eric, I wasn't losing anything. I was gaining. I was gaining a good friend, a colleague, a brother in Christ. Okay, a much younger brother in Christ. I was gaining birthday cakes. I was gaining someone to argue Miami, Nebraska football with. That's what the Jews missed. They weren't going to lose anything. They were going to gain. But they couldn't or wouldn't see it. It's what Paul argues over and over for in the New Testament in his letters. The question is, do we see it? Do we see that God is able to free us? That God offers us something that we can find nowhere else? And as the kingdom of God grows, as we are used by God to bring people in, we are being strengthened. We are gaining brothers and sisters. This is a time of strengthening but it's also a time of testing. A time of testing our faith. It's a time that reveals to us whether our faith is really what we want it to be, what we say it is, or whether it's less than that. But it's a time if we're willing to see it, to hear it, and to turn to Christ, that he will powerfully powerfully strengthen that and bring a new understanding of what the servant has done for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge. We acknowledge at times we miss the I will and I have statements that you make. We acknowledge that we want to hear the good news, but hard sometimes for us to fully understand and to believe. We look around and we see so many things going wrong and we we believe that's what it's all about. Use this time to show us. Use this time to reveal to us that as your sons and daughters, no one no one can take away our sonship, our daughtership from us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's respond to the word of God together by singing great things.
death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above singing as one. Hallelujah, holy, holy, God Almighty, great I am, who is worthy, none beside me, God Almighty, great I am. to be near, near to your heart, loving the world, hating the dark. I want to see dry bones living again, singing as one.
I wish there were five, six hundred people in this room, but I know there can't be. But I know here at home. We've been talking three weeks about the great I am. What a perfect song. He is unique. He is the only one. And he has sent his servant, his son, Jesus Christ, to offer redemption, freedom, salvation. Go share that good news. Bring some brothers and sisters to him. Go in that peace.